Hello, my name is Iriel Glynn. For this podcast, I'll discuss current Irish emigration from an historical perspective by comparing and contrasting it with what occurred in the 1950s and 1980s, decades which also saw large numbers depart. By briefly examining the scale of emigration during each period, the reasons people left, the origins and destinations of emigrants, and the political and public reaction to departure, to departure of so many, some interesting conclusions can, I believe, be drawn in relation to present-day trends. Everyone will no doubt be aware of Ireland's extensive emigration history, particularly during and after the famine. Irish nationalists had often blamed large-scale 19th century emigration on wealthy landlords and British occupation, but found it difficult to explain why so many people still felt inclined to leave the country following independence. This became particularly clear during the 1950s, when Irish emigration rose to levels not seen for over half a century. Over 400,000 people left Ireland in the 1950s. Considering that the Irish population at the time measured less than 3 million, this is an incredible and damning statistic. Despite Ireland surviving the Great Depression in the 1930s better than many of its European counterparts, it never experienced the 1950s post-war boom that took place across much of Europe, whereas most northern European countries saw remarkable and sustained economic growth, Ireland stagnated, with historians variously referring to it as the lost decade, the decade of doom and gloom, and the worst decade since the famine. Ireland was, along with East Germany, the only European country whose population actually declined during the decade. In 1950s Ireland, the small farm rural economy, especially in the west of the country, was in an irreversible decline. Young men left rural Ireland because of the increasing modernisation of agriculture, which resulted in a continuing decline in demand for agricultural labour and the state's inability to industrialise or provide any alternative employment solutions. Simultaneously, English cities were in need of workers to help service and rebuild the country. These same cities offered young Irish women employment and living conditions far better than available at home, as well as shorter working hours and more personal freedom. Young Irish people were influenced by what their peers did, said and planned, and that was emigration. John Healy's haunting book, Death of an Irish Town, demonstrated the widespread perception that rural Ireland around this time was gradually dying, with young people leaving in such large numbers. Irish-speaking areas and island communities on the western Irish seaboard were overrepresented in this exodus. Before independence, most Irish emigrants had left for America. From the 1930s onwards, however, they moved predominantly to the UK rather than the US because of the introduction of American immigration restrictions in the 1920s and the effect of the Great Depression in the 1930s. Seasonal migration took place throughout the 1930s to England and Scotland, and over 100,000 Irish moved to Britain during the Second World War. The Irish became the largest immigrant group in England, and with large networks of family members and friends based there, more followed after the war, when Britain needed to rebuild approximately 30% of its housing, destroyed by air raids. Huge manpower was also required to facilitate Britain's post-war boom, that saw the creation of ambitious engineering projects, a huge rise in factory output, and the need to provide for the country's newly established National Health Service. The most popular destinations for Irish emigrants were London and English Midland cities, such as Birmingham and Coventry. A survey of the migrant Irish in Britain completed in the early 1970s indicated that three-quarters had left school after primary education. Remember that it was only in 1967 that secondary education became free. Nonetheless, Irish female migrants were often better 
educated than their male counterparts, as demonstrated by their extensive involvement in the nursing profession. It is important to note that emigration was not only incurred by less well-off rural Irish people. The urban working class and the middle classes were also represented, albeit not in such stark numbers as their rural counterparts. Many of the men who emigrated were often employed, employed as navvies and in factories. Many a song has recorded the involvement of male Irish migrants in the construction industry in England, with perhaps MacAlpine's Fusiliers the most famous of all. Alton Crowley, who traced the experiences of the Irish building labourers in his book The Men Who Built Britain, recorded how the Irish were often the heavy diggers who dominated the groundwork aspects of British construction. Although they could undoubtedly earn more than at home, better wages came at a price, which included a sometimes lonely, nomadic lifestyle, with workers frequently accommodated in poorly equipped lodging houses. Irish-born men in the UK had much higher mortality rates than other men in England, and Irish men and women were much more likely to be admitted to hospital for psychiatric treatment than any other group, continuing a sad trend identified in the Madness Migration and the Irish in Lancashire podcast, also on the History Hub, with rates of depression and alcoholism far outweighing their native-born counterparts. Even after the declaration of the Irish Republic in 1948, Irish citizens in Britain had a special non-foreign status that enabled emigrants to take up employment without any restrictions. In the mid-1960s, public concern in the UK mounted about the levels of Caribbean and South Asian immigrants, as Chris Pryor has discussed in his podcast about post-colonial Britain. Even though Britain's Irish population was by a long stretch still the largest migrant group in the country, the Irish attracted relatively little attention in part because they were far less visible than any other newcomers, and they were perceived to be largely accepted. Irish migrants were white, had a long history of living and working in the UK, and spoke English, although some Irish speakers only learnt English properly in England, as recalled in Bob Quinn's excellent film entitled Dousa on Diary, or The Immigrant Dance. Some Irish emigrants recall that the English treated them with disdain, but many, by contrast, note that England has been good to us, Indeed, some Irish navvies wrote that English foremen were much fairer than Irish foremen. One Irish emigrant interviewed by Catherine Dunn in a book about emigration to England commented that once they stepped off the boat in Holyhead in the 1950s, for the Irish government it was amen, goodbye. Thank God our unemployment figures are down, because nobody wanted to know. Nevertheless, the Irish state gladly welcomed annual remittances sent to families by emigrants that measured the equivalent of roughly the same amount spent by the Irish state on old-age pensions at the time. Opposition political parties tended to use emigration as a stick to beat whoever was in power, but when they entered government themselves, 
they tried to ignore the issue, as occurred throughout the 1950s with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and its various coalition partners. Although a commission on emigration was established in the late 1940s, it took almost a decade to publish its findings and was quickly buried. J.J. Lee, when discussing emigration in the seminal Ireland 1912-1985, remarked that the emigrant figures for the 40s and 50s stand as a permanent commentary on the collective calibre of the Mandarins, the bankers and the Gombean men, who, he argued, may as well have lived in a different country from their victims. Emigration decreased substantially in the 1960s as Ireland belatedly underwent a form of industrialisation. When more people began to return to the country than leave it in the 1970s, it appeared that Ireland no longer required the safety valve of emigration. Years of huge borrowing and spending in the 1970s, along with another oil crisis in 1979, produced an economy in turmoil, as demonstrated by Charles Hawhey's State of the Nation speech in 1980. Good evening. I wish to talk to you this evening about the State of the Nation's affairs, and the picture I have to paint is not, unfortunately, a very cheerful one. The figures which are just now becoming available to us show one thing very clearly. As a community, we are living a way beyond our means. The servicing of state debt, which stood at over 120% of GDP, meant that there was next to nothing left in the government coffers, and further borrowing was required to keep everything ticking. Sound familiar? As the labour force grew in size, the lack of employment growth resulted in increased unemployment and increased emigration. In 1973, unemployment stood at 5.7% of the labour force. Within 10 years, unemployment grew to 14% of the labour force and continued to rise to almost 20%. Manufacturing jobs were hit hardest. This caused extensive emigration throughout the decade, particularly from the mid-1980s onward, when conditions showed no signs of improving in Ireland, in contrast to the south of England and to the US, whose economies had begun to recover. Slightly less than a quarter of a million people left Ireland during the 1980s, with the majority of them leaving in the second half of the decade. With Ireland's population by then measuring approximately 3.5 million, this exodus did not have the same impact on the population as occurred in the 1950s. In the early 1960s, Irish children held the unhappy distinction of possessing the poorest completion rates for primary and secondary cycles of education anywhere in Europe. By 1990, Ireland was second in the OECD league table for those attending third-level colleges. As a result of all these changes to the Irish education system, young people in 1980s Ireland tended to be much better educated than their 1950s counterparts. Nonetheless, that did not spare them from the same fate, as many felt inclined to emigrate as a result of steadily deteriorating economic conditions and a dearth of employment opportunities. Due to massive cuts to public expenditure and a relatively static workforce, despite a growing labour force, limited opportunities existed for many young people coming out of school or university. Many chose to leave their countries of birth for pastures new when it became apparent that conditions showed, showed no signs of improvement. Many chose to leave their countries of birth for pastures new when it became apparent that conditions showed no signs of improvement. More males than females emigrated during the 1980s because employment prospects for women were not as badly affected as for men. As occurred in the 1950s, some of those emigrating in the 1980s had jobs at home, but found that their occupations failed to match their aspirations. In a similar vein to the 1950s, most emigrants headed across the sea to England, particularly to the greater London area, 
America too, in the contrast to the 1950s, provided a popular outlet for the regular and irregular wandering Irish as the United States underwent sustained economic growth. Smaller numbers parted for continental Europe and further afield, such as Australia and New Zealand. Irish governments in the 1980s tried to put a positive spin on recurring departures by referring to it as a part of a new wave, a new European phenomenon, a new departure in Irish emigration history. This so-called new wave of emigration was regarded as a voluntary activity involving well-educated young adults who were climbing social ladders abroad and were better qualified than their predecessors to compete in overseas labour markets. In an interview Done at the height of an upswing in youth emigration in 1987, Ireland's Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time, Brian Lennon Sr., controversially commented that we can't all live on a small island, even though Ireland's population density remained extremely low by European standards. Apart from the human cost of this exodus, there was an economic one. For while Ireland was picking up the bill for the education of so many of those who left, she was to be denied many of the benefits and other countries' economies were to enjoy the use of their skills and training. What has occurred in Ireland more recently tends to hold much more similarities with the 1980s than the 1950s. Public debt has spiralled due to the socialisation of public debts, which count for approximately half of state borrowing, and the continuing gulf between what the state takes in and pays out in wages and services. The result has been an enormous deterioration in employment openings, Unlike the 1980s, which saw the sustained decline in manufacturing jobs in Ireland, the current period experienced an incredible downturn in the construction industry, which saw the loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs. Although the construction industry has been hardest hit, almost every sector has felt the effects of the crisis. The catastrophe caused by the situation Ireland finds itself in has led to a state embargo on public jobs and a remarkable decline in opportunities for employment in the private sector as reflected in the enormous rise in unemployment that has taken place, with the rate rising from less than 5% in 2006 to over 14% today. Although emigration represented a lifestyle choice to some people, and migrants did want to enjoy themselves, as Michael Noonan and Mary Cochran controversially commented, it cannot explain why the number of Irish people emigrating went from just over 13,000 in 2007 to over 40,000 in 2011. The terrible state of the Irish economy, however, does clearly explain the jump in figures. Most people leaving Ireland today are again young, since the age groups most affected by rising unemployment, with approximately 40% of 15 to 19 year olds, over 25% of 20 to 24 year olds, and over 16% of 25 to 34 year olds out of work. Presumably, many of those leaving due to the obvious lack of opportunities available to young people are recent third level graduates. This reflects the increasingly educated makeup of Ireland's population rather than that different people are leaving from before. Males predominate. Males predominate mainly because of the demise of the construction industry. International economic conditions today vary enormously compared to the 1950s and the 1980s. In the 1950s, Britain required a huge labour force to re help rebuild the country after the war and prosper during the boom. In the 1980s, particularly the latter half of the decade, Britain, particularly South England, where most Irish emigrated to, and America, had recovered sufficiently from the various oil price crises of the 1970s to record extensive economic growth. Work, therefore, was more plentiful elsewhere than at home. This is in marked contrast to conditions today. The UK, America 
and most other EU states, barring Germany, have also, along with Ireland, experienced severe economic downturns as a result of the current global financial crisis. The effects of the crisis only became apparent in figures for Irish citizens emigrating in 2010. In 2007 and 2008, for example, approximately 13,000 left. In contrast, the figures for foreign people leaving Ireland showed a notable jump, especially people from the newer EU states. Since 2010, however, more Irish people have left than foreigners. In the 1980s, emigration also remained relatively low until the middle of the decade. Perhaps the same could be happening now in Ireland. People have waited to see if conditions would improve. When it became apparent that the economy remained in flux, as was obviously the case since 2010, Irish people started to leave in greater numbers. We might expect, therefore, a continued rise in emigration figures in the foreseeable future, especially if economic conditions in locations such as the UK improve. Despite poor economic conditions in England, it still represents the most popular destination for migrants, who feel that it offers them better prospects than Ireland. It is true that sizable numbers of Irish people are travelling to Australia on one or two year visas, but it is also true that sizable numbers are coming back after their visas expire because they fail to gain sponsorship. The late NUI Maynooth sociologist Liam Ryan once wrote that emigration is a mirror in which the Irish nation can always see its true face. I think this quote demonstrates how emigration can be used as a prism to look at Irish society more generally. Emigration becomes an issue that dominates political, public and media debates at times of economic and crisis in Ireland, as I have discussed today in relation to the 1950s, the 1980s and the present. In times of crisis, Ireland tends to spit out its young, many of whom are talented, but soon some of whom are also troubled and vulnerable. Irish society and the Irish state have reaped benefits from this outflow by way of remittances, reduced unemployment figures and raised opportunities for those left behind. But these gains are often short-term ones and come at the expense of the creation of long-term problems. Emigration, particularly the emigration of people who would prefer to stay at home but feel they have to go because of reduced opportunities here, can result in psychological trauma for the families and the communities torn apart. Furthermore, the outflow of sizable chunks of Ireland's young labour force, for which the state has paid dearly to educate and train, represents a significant loss of a vibrant outlet for reinvigoration and renewal, qualities that the Irish state clearly needs today to help it get out and keep it out of the mire that it finds itself in today.